0: from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC
1: Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Mark Shapiro of the Graduate School of Journalism discussing his book, Seeds of Resistance, The Fight to Save Our Food Supply. He is joined by Deirdre English, also of the Graduate School of Journalism.
0: Thank you very much, and I'm delighted to be here. And um, I love this book. And uh, I think it's a really important book and also a really skillfully written book. And I'm very mindful that we're here at the um, Townsend Center for the Humanities. And this is not really a book in the humanities. This is a book in science journalism, um, which is Mark's field. And Mark Mark teaches environmental journalism at the Graduate School of Journalism, where I also teach. And we've known each other for a long time. (laughs) <laughs> um, we'll, we may touch on that, um, because it's even, it's even bound up in the it, yeah.
1: story of the book, yes. right? Yes, yes, yes. But
0: um, I, uh, uh, anyway, so just thinking about how to interview Mark today, I thought I would maybe try to give it a little humanity spin, uh, which is very easy to do, given this book, because this book really is a coming together of science and the art of writing, um, science and literature. And I say that because it's very beautifully written in places, and you'll see that, and also because it's so rich in storytelling. And we have a lot to say about that, too. So there's the science, and then there's the storytelling and the use of language that are all really relevant today. (laughs) And so with that theme in mind, um, let me just start by um, asking Mark, I'm going to just start by asking about the title of his book, Seeds of Resistance. I'm going to get to the seeds, but I'm going to start with the resistance. And that is a double entendre, and um, as you uh, and I want to ask Mark, what you had in mind? Um, <laughs> are you when you spoke about resistance, résistance? What are you talking about?
1: Um, <laughs> well, thank you for that question because this is like <laughs> one of the rare books that I've written that I actually knew what the title was from. Like the minute I started writing it, I was kind of like, "That's it, and it's not going to change." And um, Uh, um, um, I was thinking of two things. One is the ecological resistance that we need to deal with climatic shifts. So climate change, which I've written quite a bit about, is profoundly changing conditions on the planet and particularly conditions for growing food. So, uh, And what we need, and it's clear, farmers, scientists, everybody's telling us, that what we need are seeds that are capable of resisting these changes. And when we say resistance, it's actually showing resilience to these changes, the ability to adapt, the ability to um, adapt to the on the accelerating drought, the uh, diminishment of water, the changing water patterns, et cetera, et cetera, the dramatic shifts underway. So on the one hand, we need kind of resistance from the seeds on the planet. And at the same time, I am trained in investigative Journalism. So, usually, what I, my common um, approach, as Deirdre knows, we go way back in this uh, arena too, was to do a big blast of investigation and then let other people figure out what to do <laughs> with the consequences and just say, okay, it's up to you. <laughs> and um, after a couple decades of doing this work and actually coming to understand the environmental stresses better. I thought it was very important in this book to not only investigate where we are with the state of seeds on this planet, but also to show the resistance that's been emerging to the efforts of big companies to take control of these seeds and why that matters now at this time of high environmental stress. So I put those two together, and I was kind of like, they are the seeds of resistance. It's the seeds themselves that are resisting, and it's also the community of people all around the world, farmers, scientists, citizens, um, that are, um, resisting efforts to assert corporate dominion mm. over these fundamental ingredients.
0: So the botanical resistance of the seed, resistance yes. to drought conditions, yes. for example, yes. needs to be defended by a political or activist resistance yes. to the corporate takeover of the seed, yes. the poor little seed. Yes. Okay. So, um, that's clear. And, uh, I want to um, with my next question I want to really bring out some of the power of Marx's writing and uh, and also to put the seed seeds of resistance from the title really in the center of our discussion as Mark does with this book you know to really he really valorizes the seed and he really reminds us of the seed as a fount of life um, and that the seed is in danger uh, and we need to defend it so um, I want you to hear some of some of Mark's more poetic writing. because there's a lot of There's a lot of science in this book. There's a lot of investigative reporting in this book. But there's also some really mellifluous writing. And I'm going to ask him to read a few paragraphs from the end of the book, which he's written in in an interesting, really circular structure, where the end of the book could equally serve as the beginning of it. And you'll see what I mean when he reads this. It's a fairly long section. So would you you please read that, Mark? Sure. You know where to start, right?
1: Yeah. OK. Well, I'll start with George Bernard Shaw. I'm going to reference George sure. Bernard Shaw. This does come at the end. That's good. We're all familiar with George Bernard Shaw. <laughs> so this comes at the very end. My favorite description of seeds comes from the great Irish playwright, George Bernard Shaw, who characterized them with just three words. Seeds contain, he said, a fierce energy. Shaw was talking specifically about acorns and the marvel of how they grow from tiny kernels into mighty trees, dispensing tasty nuggets. But the same words could apply to any seeds on Earth. Seeds drop from trees, blow from flowers, tumble from the feet of bees, arise from the waste of squirrels. A kernel can spend centuries lying dormant, apparently lifeless. Then add some water, a dapple of sunshine, a couple of minerals, and voila, a stream of energy commences. Seeds actually sense the presence of those life-giving elements, and that it's time to start photosynthesizing, time to send sugars through its veins, time to emerge. The shell cracks, a sprig emerges, a stem pokes above the surface of the earth and delivers to us a flower or a fruit or more seeds that provide food for humans and other animals. It takes a certain ferocity to accomplish this transformation from dormancy to life, as it does to adapt to the changes that are occurring in the ground in which seeds grow. The metabolism of seeds growing in the midst of drought will slow down to preserve their energy until conditions change. Leaves contract or unfurl depending on the flow of water and intensity of the sun, for just two examples among many. Seeds can control those basic adaptive functions. But the question now is, who controls the seeds? They are where the story ahead begins.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you can see. And that's where his book ends. Um, so well, with that, I want to um, move on to storytelling. And this is a book that is absolutely filled with amazing stories, um, just revelatory stories. So, about scientists, uh, individuals, mm-hmm. you know, um, sci- scientists without whom we wouldn't have the biodiversity that we have today, and frankly, villainous corporations <laughs> who are um, really guilty of depriving us of the biodiversity that we need to withstand climate change. I think that's really the basic s- skeleton of the book. And so, it, then it's filled with so many really rich stories. Um, so let me start by asking you, well, I, I have to say that I was reading this book and last two weeks ago, I was in Arizona and I visited the Wallapi uh, reservation and, um, I observed a lot of the problems of that community. And I, I went into the local, the only grocery store, uh, on at least on that section of the reservation. And there was, you know, there I saw, you know, a lot of Frito-Lay, corn chips, potato chips, and Pepsi. And uh, at the same time, I was reading Mark's book. And you'll see why I mentioned this in that context. So would you start off by telling us that anecdote about parched corn?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, first of all, w- the challenge in a book on seeds is that they appear to be inanimate. But of course, they're not. I mean. They're deeply alive. But um, the challenge from a journalistic, from a storytelling point of view, how do you bring these things to life? Because they don't move around. You, you can't really follow them around. And they, they're not gesturing like characters in a, in, a, <laughs> in life. And that was a real challenge. And, um, uh, you, can and I, <laughs> you can't interview them. You can't interview them. Yes. But you can kind of interview them. Because then I realized, actually, this... Um, um, that actually seeds actually tell stories. And it sounds like weird, but then I, I started thinking about these trees that I've seen. When you go to a tree, you see a tree. And if it's cut down, you will see this incredible rings in a tree. And actually, those rings, and you, I think you learn as a kid or in your first biology classes, that each one of these rings represents a cycle of time that that tree has survived. And um, if you think about it, those rings tell you a huge amount about the life of that tree. They tell you about the, the conditions in which that tree arose, the, um, the stresses that it endured, because those you can register if you really know how to read tree rings. And the length and the age of that tree will be clear from, the tree, from tree rings. And I thought, well, the same thing is going on in seeds, actually. If you were able to cut open a seed, that had been around for a long time here on the Earth, you would actually be able to interpret the conditions in which that seed grow, where it, where, where, where it emanated from, the kinds of stresses that it endured. Of course, it's much smaller than a tree, and you have to have a super high level of specified knowledge to be able to read that. But poetically speaking, if you think of a seed as a storytelling As an uh, as something as an organism that can tell you stories, it was like an insight that actually really helped me to write Mm. this book because I realized Mm. that the stories were about not only what the conditions in which the seeds grow, it's also about the humans who interact with those seeds and the other organisms that interact with those seeds. And suddenly, I had a living story, and um, one of those stories is about. um, There's this incredible. seed bank that I visited in Arizona. It's right next to us in uh, Tucson, Arizona. This incredible seed bank called Native Seed Search. And it's a repository of um, seeds that are native to the Southwest, which actually means Native American seeds, 90% of which these are Native American seeds that have been grown by Native American communities for thousands of years. Longest period of domesticated agriculture in North America, the American Southwest, New Mexico, Arizona. And um, those people have been growing foodstuffs for thousands of years in hot and dry conditions. So they are saving those seeds in this place, very important. And those seeds are now being looked to by farmers all across the Southwest and other parts of the United States as sources of new genetic information. Very important place. Into the They also happen to have a, a gift shop in the place where you can buy seeds. You could, you could go down there and buy them right outside of Tucson. It's really cool. And they sell, like, seeds, and they sell fertilizer, and it's organic, and et cetera, et cetera. And, but they also sell these little bags of parched corn, which are basically <laughs> parched corn, which are, like, heated up kernels of corn that are salted and are totally delicious and come out of the Hopi community, which has been parching corn for, like, Thousands of years, and they figured out how to do it. And they put them in little bags. You can buy them for a couple bucks. They're delicious, and um, on their packaging, they happen to say um, these parched corn uh, nuts taste kind of like corn nuts, and um, delicious, and and you know salty and everything. And into their mailbox at this small little kind of adobe settlement, really outside of Tucson, where this seed bank is comes a letter from Frito-Lay. And into this place comes Frito-Lay. And it tells them, cease and desist immediately from the use of the term, from calling these corn nuts. Because we have trademarked the term corn nuts. And, um, uh, and of course, this came like a complete bolt from the heavens, like out of com- foreign universe into this small little place. And if you go there, you'll be charmed by it. But it's a small little uh, institution. Was suddenly facing blowback from one of the biggest food companies in the world, which is, in turn, owned by Pepsi-Cola, by the way. So it's Pepsi that actually (laughs) sends this thing (laughs) Frito-Lay. And so the number one, that's incredibly revealing about the efforts of a multinational food company to claim ownership of an idea that had actually been around for thousands of years in a group of Hopi native people in neighboring New Mexico, which is where this place gets all these uh, poached corn. And I talked to some uh, native uh, people in New Mexico uh, who, you know, and this woman tells me, oh yeah, we used to grow up with all that. My grandmother used to do these poached corn and they were delicious. We popped them up, the thing, they were salty. And so I thought that was a very revealing story about, for two reasons. One is it tells you a lot about the potency of seeds and the long-term resilience of those corn seeds that came out of native communities in um, the Southwest, and the efforts of big multinational food companies and other multinational and chemical companies to assert dominion over the seeds from, that, that arise from the Earth. And so, so I thought that happened? was an So uh, what
0: happened? How did they respond to the letter?
1: Well, the point was, essentially, it's a small organization. They're funded partly by donations, partly by this gift shop. They had no capacity to fight Frito-Lay uh, uh, in court. Would have cost God knows how many millions. And so they capitulated. And so now you can buy these little things, but they say something like, delicious uh, parched corn... And same damn thing, but uh, they no longer use the word corn nuts.
0: You know, you have a beautiful paragraph where you say they might have, you know, in saying, you know, they they capitulated to these lawyers as if they had no choice, but um, you say something like uh, that they might have written back asking (laughs) Frito Lay or PepsiCo to thank them for the centuries. Of indigenous labor that went into so producing those corn, those corn seeds, the corn yes. seeds in the first place. Yes, um, that uh, Frito Lay now has a patent on. Okay, so they they didn't do that, but no, I love that. Did, I love it did. where you say that in the book. Yes, you know. I mean. um, anyway. But n- best not to provoke the lawyers, I guess. <laughs> anyway, um, so let's talk about that though. Um, where does corn actually come from? Yeah. It's the, is it the most native um vegetable we have in this country would you say I mean is it the uh, most is it the most indigenous I mean there must be others that are just as but
1: well it's, it's really no Amer- I would say you really know beans and uh, beans and squash are native american we've been yeah. growing those for thousands of years
0: but it's but very think much it's on this continent
1: these. right uh no and yes from the from the continent if you include mexico on this yeah. continent yeah. and um uh so if you We are very corn based. We are corn based of course I mean, what's interesting is you get to the heart of where do, where do seeds come from? And it turns out, if you were to look at a map of the world and you were to have a dinner, let's say the Townsend Center was going to say, we're going to have a big dinner and we're going to invite everybody to a, native, to, to, to a dinner with native North American foods. I don't mean native people North America, but native um, to North America. And you would invite us to dinner, which would be extremely nice of you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and there we would have, at, in a bowl in the middle of the, of the dinner, um, some artichokes, a couple cranberries, and some pecans. And basically, the, that is basically the foods that emanate from uh, North America. I'm sure I'm missing one or two, but they're all very minor um, in our diet. All the other foods come from these centers of origin around the world, which which is this band of land around the equator. So to get to the question of where corn comes from, which is fascinating, is basically corn comes from uh, uh, in southern Mexico, in the mountains around Oaxaca, is where where actually corn originally emanates from. And what's cool is it emanates from this little as... um, Deirdre beautifully put it, unpalatable cob. Uh, <laughs> that's basically this little scrawny cob um, of corn that's kind of a wild relative of corn. It's called teosinte. And um, teosinte is both completely inedible, so I don't recommend it, and um, that nobody even in Mexico has figured out how to, how to make it edible, but it contains this incredible panoply of important genetic material so that that's able to pass along to more palatable, edible forms of corn to offer resistance. So when in 1970, I tell this story, and I went to a farm, uh, um, uh, this is what got me going on the story, really, was this, was, was this experience I had when back about 30 years ago.
0: I remember this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Deirdre English herself was the editor of a great magazine, Mother Jones. And um, she sent me crazily enough off to um, Iowa (laughs) to do a story about what it meant when you had genetic uniformity in a crop. And I ended up talking with um, some farmers in the middle of Iowa who had experienced this complete wipeout of the American corn crop when it was revealed that... um, that um, a bug had attacked in North Carolina within six months had had wiped out the corn in Iowa and everything in between. And so it's a completely devastating impact. And it was because there were only like two types of corn planted in the United States. And so when, in a complete panic, those farmers and scientists tried to resolve how to uh, breed resistance into the American corn crop, they went down to Mexico and they were able to get Uh, material from Teosinte and from other wild-growing corn in Mexico. And they brought it back to the United States, bred it in, and within a season or two, they were able to respond. Those plants were naturally resistant to this pest. And um, over and over and over again, you see why it's so critical to have uh, naturally evolved forms of seeds. Uh, that can actually bring in these kind of characteristics of resistance. And I talk about different examples, you know, in the book where that's...
0: So let's see if we get this clear. So the story of corn is, it starts with this unpalatable cob,
1: right? (laughs) Yes.
0: Okay, and then um, over centuries, indigenous people experiment with with natural selection and, um, right, with, with encouraging different breeds of, yes. is that the right word?
1: Yeah, yeah, they of, breed through natural selection. They, breed,
0: yeah. they breed the corn until they get a whole variety of more or less palatable Corn, right, Some of it's purple, right? Yeah, well,
1: some, yeah. Yellow, purple, blue. Blue, yeah, blue white, gold, yeah. all different. It's all Here it's yellow, yeah. but in Mexico it's blue and purple, and
0: yeah. And some tastes good to you, and some tastes good to you, and <laughs> some could be used for a tortilla, and some is better, right. on, you know, in a different way. Um, and there's all this experimentation mm-hmm. and improvement of the corn that happens over centuries, and that's where the thank you letter from Frida lay would have been most appropriate, right? Um, but then how does that turn into a situation where American farmers in the Midwest are just planting, are only planting two strains of corn? Yes. Uh, and then, just corn. And then yeah. what yeah. happens yes. when they do that? Yeah. But, let's, but just stick to corn yeah. for, for now. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not just corn. We can talk <laughs> about many other things, but wheat and potatoes and the same story, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's good. Just what? Yeah. How does that happen?
1: Well, that has happened because of a... Um, sequence of um, events going back to the 90s. This is where you get into the 80s and 90s. This is where you get into the backstory to how we got to this place, which is the investigative part of this book. But it's basically, um, we have a situation now where you have four companies that are basically chemical companies that dominate more than 60% of the world's seeds. And they even dominate more of the corn seeds, more like 85% of the corn, 60% of the overall commercial. So <clears throat> how did we get to that point was we had this process where, where to rapidly truncate, you had a combination of, number one, the, um, a series of Supreme Court decisions that enabled companies to patent living organisms, which had never been possible before the 1980s and a sequence of decisions by the Supreme Court, that enabled uh, companies to patent a living organism. Why is this so radical? Number one, it's a radical idea that you can that you can actually patent an organism that will change over time. Right? That's net, that's huge, and that enabled um, seed companies to actually, or companies that began to own seed companies, to patent their seeds and to put huge amounts of publicity and um, inducements to, um, to buying those seeds. The second thing was genetic engineering, which actually transformed the corn
0: yeah. business
1: substantially. Right, let's
0: come back to genetic engineering. But I want to ask you, do you feel that was a fundamental wrong turn when the Supreme Court made that decision or the decisions that flowed from it to allow the patenting of, of a living organism?
1: Uh, I do, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... The reason is that where seeds uh, obtain their ability to respond to ecological conditions is through season after season after season. Survival of the fittest. It's Darwin It's Darwin in the field, basically. And it's, it's brutal, but it's simple, and it's very effective. And that's how we got here. And it's how we all got here. So, and, it, and it works in the field just like it works with us. And it's basically that kind of dynamic... And why that's important now, more than any other time, it's always been important. But now it's particularly important, because what you have is you have climate change that's altering conditions very rapidly, very rapidly. And they're changing so rapidly that even the big companies can't even keep up with those changes. They're happening so quickly and so dramatically. And I spent a lot of time in the Central Valley recently, and I saw those happening right here And in the Midwest. I spent some time doing reporting on this book. You could see it. And, uh, so the question is, um, uh, 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 so how do we adapt to those circumstances? Well, there's a big difference between seeds that evolve within their ecological uh, um, home, within within a, within w- in an environment in which they're capable of responding over multiple generations, and seeds that come out of laboratories at, or, or, that are genetically engineered to kind of perform certain functions with certain traits. They're in no relationship with the environment. I actually talked to this woman at Monsanto. She was just a high up official at Monsanto <coughs> and it was so interesting. She said I said, so how is the company responding to, you know, climate 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 change? And, you know. And she first of all, her first thing was like, Oh yeah, this is huge. You know, we just sent a bunch of people to this to the March for Science. You know, Monsanto was there at the March for Science. You know, uh, half of you might have been there too, but so was Monsanto um, back a year ago or something. And she was very proud of that because Monsanto knows that the Earth is changing very rapidly, and. Um, And I thought, well, that's interesting. And uh, she said, yes, but what we are doing is we are identifying what those conditions... We we are trying to breed seeds that are separate from the environmental conditions around them. Essentially, what they're trying to do is create a set of conditions for every seed by the intense application of chemical uh, fertilizers, chemical pesticides. You create an artificial environment that the seed is perfectly adapted to or the, the seed is completely dependent on Monsanto's products to survive. Completely It's a de- crack baby seed. Yeah. It's basically born addicted to the chemicals that Monsanto provides, which is a... And so I thought that that... Her statement, which she just told me frankly, I mean, that was, was very revealing of this distinction that we're talking about. The, you have all these seeds coming out of these kind of chemical companies that are essentially crack baby seeds. And, and they have to be replaced every year with a new tweak. But they're engaged in no dynamic with the ecological surroundings. And time after time after time, and I talk about this in the book, and I found it fascinating. I talked to seed breeders, and I talked to uh, farmers, and everybody. Is that the s- the seeds, which is actually a farm, you know, which is a cultivation of a food crop, is far more resilient to changes when it's got a diverse variety of population in the field that can actually respond and interact and. and and has much more organic material in the soil, which also absorbs water and has an interaction with the minerals and other elements in the soil. So this, in particular now, I think it's always been an important question. But in particular, right now uh, now and moving forward in a time of incredible volatility, um, it's why we need a biodiverse source of seeds Great. yeah.
0: Well, I want to go to questions. But I just want to say one thing we haven't really said much about climate change. And um, we are now really uh, experiencing desertification in this country. Yeah. And could you just very briefly say what we can expect in California with climate change (laughs) and how it's going to affect agriculture? And after you answer that, we'll go to questions. Uh, How climate change is going to affect agriculture in California. Yes.
1: Um, Well, I just spent the spring actually going in and out of the Central Valley when I wasn't teaching at the day school. Um, and the piece came out in the summer as a whole package for Bay Nature and KQED. And what's interesting is that climate change is already transforming the Central Valley. There's a slow panic setting in. The water is not, the, the water supply is diminishing rapidly. Um, the, um, the temperature is completely changing cultivation patterns. So basically, you have new crops coming in. Almonds are being replaced by pistachios, basically, because pistachios come from a hot, dry climate in Iran and and, uh, Turkey, and um, almonds are not doing all that well when it comes to um, depleted water. So you have two two things are happening in the central in California agriculture. One is a shift of crops. Two is increasing fallowing of land that used to be agriculturally productive because it can't get access to the water. And three, importantly, which is the other part of the resistance equation, is that you have growth and dramatic growth within the context of the Central Valley, still relatively small in the Central Valley, but dramatic growth over the past 10 years in more um, ecologically harmonious forms of agriculture. So they're showing kind of a, um, uh, farms that have a diverse variety of seeds that, that are planted and uh, are utilizing organic farming techniques, which include kind of deeper, much more minerals in the soil and interactions with the plants and cover crops that return minerals to the soil, are far more resilient to these shifts. And that's happening over and over and over again. You can see that. And I think that's been one of the interesting things to look at in the Central Valley.
0: And at least that's a note of hope.
1: Yeah, no, there is hope here. And there are all sorts of examples all over the world of people utilizing these techniques. A huge amount of, right here on this campus, a lot of research being done. But all over this country, um, I saw uh, people doing incredible work with um, diversity of 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 seeds, of pursuing more agroecological techniques, of working with their environment rather than trying to channel it and defy the environmental conditions. And, you know, there are incredible um, stories out there of people doing this. Now, I didn't end up totally despondent in this. (laughs) I ended up, like, kind of having a lot more respect for those people who are defying these trends and offering us a way... Yeah, Rude, and the resistance is
0: fascinating yeah. because it comes, the resistance
1: that yeah. comes
0: from um, farmers, yeah. scientists,
1: yeah. botanists, yes. right, yeah. um,
0: uh, and consumers. Vote with your fork. Yeah. So on that note, let's go to uh, questions. Oh, here's someone. You're from the J school. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you get the first question. <laughs> I'm curious about, like, if there are only six or so companies, how do they, and you say that, you know. Four. Oh, four, four. <laughs> four. Okay. there you go, even less. How do they compete with each other, then? I thought that, too, yeah.
1: Well, fascinating. Yeah. This is totally I fascinating. I was that. That. like,
0: That's the <laughs> yeah. yes.
1: They compete with each other. Yeah, they're, they're each multinational companies. There's Dow, DuPont, a huge American chemical company. Monsanto now owned by Bayer, a huge German um, pharmaceutical chemical company. Um, Syngenta, which is a Swiss company owned by ChemChina, which is a huge chemical company in China. And um, uh, the fourth is BASF, which is a huge German chemical company. And those are the four that dominate 60% of these trade. So what's interesting is they compete in the way that big multinationals compete. They have advertising and they do science. There's um, rising indicators that some of the science has been, you know, Manipulated. What's interesting is the argument over and over again is that when we consolidate, you have to get approval from some regulator. There'll be more innovation, and we'll we'll come up with new products. This group called the Farmer Business network is a fantastic uh, entity—and there's a, they're a great story right near here. A bunch of Google engineers kind of left Google. They're like algorithm, you know, experts. And they figured, well, and some of them came from farm backgrounds. So they thought they would create a data collection company for farmers that was independent of the chemical companies, because they, they knew that farmers were not trusting the data that was coming out of the chemical companies. And they started producing data showing the relative performance of all these seeds. What they discovered was amazing. They asked all these like thousands of farmers all across America to send in their seed samples from different companies, so, you know, Dow, DuPont, Monsanto, Bayer, you know, Syngenta, et cetera. And uh, they discovered, they did an ana- detail analysis that the seeds were the same. The seeds were the same. And so you had these farmers who were going out thinking they were they were farming a... Diverse array of different seeds. You know, even a farmer can get two or three different types of seeds from two or three different companies at the big seed company, and then they discovered that they were the same, which infuriated, uh, you know, thousands of people. This is somebody nobody hears about here. It's in my book, um, but uh, infuriated um, and continues to infuriate thousands of farmers who are often stuck because of the way that seeds are sold in. You know, in farming, they're trying to decide which, seed to, which buy. seed to buy, and, and basically, the same it's seed. just a
0: different advertising exactly. campaign. Yeah. yeah. So that so means so the chemicals are the same too, then?
1: Uh, they're okay. roughly the same, you know, because each one is producing some different, slightly different chemical. But the chemicals, the chemicals that go with the Dow DuPont seeds will work with the Monsanto seeds, but you think you can only buy the Dow DuPont chemical. Mm. So, this was really striking when you realize false it's false advertising. And they are, um, this, this, this is, I, I met the president of this company who comes from a farm background, and he was like, he's ready to take on the chemical companies. He's, he's pissed off. He knows that they are doing this. He's got the sophisticated analytic tools to study it. So we need to get over this presumption. So first of all, there's the presumption that the industrial agriculture system, all these big companies are going to enable us to produce enough food because we have a growing population. And first of all, you look at the data, and you see that the yields are not performing in the way that they uh, claim they're performing. And they're showing extreme fragility in the face of change, which is key, because all we're experiencing coming forward is change, volatile change. And these varieties, I think that's another reason I wrote this book was because we're reaching this point where you have this convergence of corporate consolidation and climatic change acceleration at the same time and what that means.
0: Yeah, Yeah. great, great. That's so important. Um, More questions. I think you had your hand up.
2: Hi. I have a question about the power of the consumer in this cycle. Um, I've been gardening since the 70s and um, also going to farmers markets for decades, and I know that I have seen even the shift in what's available to purchase as seeds. Um, I've purchased from a small business for decades, a family business for decades, um, and I seek out things that are like off market because I don't want to grow stuff that grows, that is available in the grocery stores. But the question is, even the farmers markets have changed dramatically over the decades. It used to be you could find a lot of imperfect food, you know naturally when you garden you have imperfections in what things look like and I feel like nowadays it's very much a polished industry it's about perfection it used to be I could go to vendors to get cheaper stuff to do canning and stuff and you can't find that as often Mm. so I I feel like it it also feeds into the cycle of you know seeds are modified in part for the consumer on the other side who wants something or who is buying something. And while we may be getting fewer choices, there is also a part of the consumer role that's feeding into the cycle. Can you address that?
1: Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, um, I don't know all the answers. I think, I think what what's, uh, might be, <clears throat> um, there are a number of ways to think that through. And one is that farmers markets have boomed and one consequence of booming is that the farms have gotten bigger. It's no longer kind of a backyard garden thing where the guy or the, or the you know, people come and sell what they've produced in a very small situation. So organic farmer market material has gotten to be kind of a real income that you can live on if you know what you're doing. And so one thing might be that they're getting better at farming because they have to do it on a more substantial level. That's possible. Because, of course, I understand the value of imperfect um, food and stuff like that. But it may be a sign of the growing sophistication of um, farmers who are able to breed seeds or work with seeds uh, that are um, you know, more developed. I mean, one, one thing, there's a lot more research going into organic agriculture. Now than there was ten years ago, and even under Obama there was an increase. Even under Trump there was a small increase in organic, believe it or not, and um, because it's a big growing industry. So um, Michelle
0: I, planted an organic garden on the White House lawn.
1: Yes, I don't think Melania is going to be doing that. Anyway. But it's an excellent question. And also, the other part of that question that gets into the bigger issue is, like, it's more expensive at a farmer's market. So there's a deep equity question on the farmer's markets. And I think one of the things to think about at those farmer's markets, which I think are critical to actually providing support to those independent farms who deliver to those farmers markets, um, uh, um, is that when we understand the price of that food, It's the accurate, it's a much more accurate price for the food than the food you get in a supermarket. When you pay extra, you're actually paying an honest price for the food, because all the prices in those piles of produce and fruit that end up at Safeway and all these other places. Um, It's cheap, maybe cheap. It's relatively cheap. In the United States, cheap food compared to many other countries. um, But all the prices, the externalized prices, the pesticide poisoning. The uh, decimation of ecological resources, the poisoning of waterways, the decimation of insect populations, and all the other factors in an ecological system are costing billions and billions and billions of dollars, amortized in all these different channels. So we don't see it in the same way. But we have to actually acknowledge that that price that you pay in a farmer's market is actually a much more accurate price for a farm that does not... Uh, undermine and destroy the ecological surroundings in which it's growing. Yeah, well,
0: I'm sure that raises a lot more questions. (laughs) Um, uh, But somebody else, I think you had your hand up. Uh, Yeah, I was wondering kind of about um, viral resistance, in particular uh, genetically modified viral resistance in crops. I don't know if you touched on any of that. In the book. But that was just, uh, it's an area where genetic modifying um, is also implemented to make crops resistant to certain viruses. And mm-hmm. I was just wondering your thoughts on that.
1: Um, I mean, I haven't looked into that specifically to be resistant to certain diseases yeah. that come with the virus. And um, I would, you know, it could be interesting. I mean, it's, I it's, tried to. The, the, I, I, at first, when I was writing the book, I was like, can I write a book on seeds and not deal with genetic modification? <laughs> because that's an explosion. <laughs> you open it up and it's like, and I concluded that I could not. So I do include some, you know, a couple chapters on um, genetic engineering. Well, I think. The, what
0: yeah. was it that decimated the corn crop? Was it a fungus? Was it an insect? It was was a, it a virus? Uh, I think it
1: was a fungus. It was a, it mm-hmm. was, yeah, it was a fungus that mm-hmm. decimated that corn crop. And uh, what's interesting now is, I'll tell you a quick story about this incredible. So it's getting hotter in the Midwest. Really hotter. You know, like NOAA stats and everything, two degrees hotter than the mean over the last 10 years. So um, it's getting hotter, and it's getting, and and, and one of the consequences of getting hotter, and also the rain is falling more erratically, is that um, in Illinois, uh, um, what they've been at, and up into the Dakotas. What they've been having is um, wheat crops that actually uh, they have an intense heat period and then an intense rain because the rain falls more intensely and then it gets hot again. So one of the results of that is these fungi are growing up that are that are as you probably know. So fungi They love this. Are you kidding? It's warm and it's moist. So fungus love this. And it's been decimating the wheat crop in uh, southern Illinois and elsewhere in in the Midwest. And what's interesting about it is that the only only, um, seed that was capable of resisting this fungus is a a seed of a wild wheat grass from Syria. And that wild wheatgrass um, is an amazing story in itself. And I go into how this seed was stored in a seed bank in Iraq, and then it ended up being Evacuated the book is to worth reading just for yeah, this one story yeah, about the adventures
0: story. of this one yeah. seed <laughs> yeah, stock.
1: Yeah, it's all—it's <laughs> all,
0: entangled with the war in Iraq yes, and yes. gets saved by these heroes, yeah. <laughs> and you know, almost isn't saved for humanity, yes. but then yes. is saved just kind in time to, to
1: yes. arrive. At, arrive in the Midwest in time. to save yeah. our wheat crop. And it's a great story. Yeah, and um, and they're amazing heroes, actually, who who move these seeds from war ravage places into places of safety that are now playing this important
0: role. And then there's this great Russian botanist yes, who winds yes, up dying yeah. in Stalin's <laughs> prisons. And, you know, and he's another hero of the book. Yeah. This is a book that is filled with the adventures of seeds, and it has lots of heroes and lots of villains. You can buy it from Mark um, directly. Special deal. for And save a few bucks on it right now, and he'll sign it. Um, I was asked to wrap this up at around 1, and I didn't see any other hands, so I think it's probably a good time to do it. And in honor of the fact that this is the Humanities Center, I will end, I will end with a poem. How, what do you think of that? This is a poem by Wendell Berry, another one of my favorite mm-hmm. writers about the environment. Um, and it's called The Man Born to Farming. We should just change it. The Person Born to Farming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kidding. <Okay. laughs> Fair enough. Um, so listen the grower of trees the gardener the man born to farming whose hands reach into the ground and sprout to him the soil is a divine drug he enters into death yearly and comes back rejoicing he has seen the light lie down in the dung heap and rise again in the corn his thought passes along the row ends like a mole that's you um (laughs) What miraculous seed has he swallowed that the unending sentence of his love flows out of his mouth like a vine clinging in the sunlight and like water descending in the dark? Wendell Berry. Thank you all for being thank here. You. And thank you, Mark.
1: Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in the series.